The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studios in Las Vegas, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Toffee. The talking heads cut their teeth in the mid-70s at CBGB's Ground Zero of New York City Punk, along with the Ramones, Patti Smith, Debbie Harry, Television, and the New York Dolls, Chris Franz, future wife Tina Weymouth, David Byrne, and Jerry Harrison were the talking heads, and they would eventually influence other acts like U2, R.E.M., Arcade Fire, LCD Sound System, and Ray Radiohead, who actually derived their name from a Talking Head song. Drummer Chris Franz has written all about life in the band, and he joins me now from his home in Connecticut. Chris, welcome. I sure, I sure hope that you and Tina and your family are doing well during these times. Oh yes, uh, thank you very much. We're we're fine. I'm, I'm thank goodness. I mean, uh, we actually lost my mother back in the spring to to COVID nineteen. Wow. Uh, so, and you know, Tina does have an underlying condition. I mean, she's fine, but she's uh, g- genetically very susceptible to lung infections, and um, so so we've been extra careful, and we continue to be, you know, isolating, and and you know, we wear our masks the few times we go out. But thank goodness we, we're fortunate enough to live in a you know a beautiful spot. Where I'm calling you from Connecticut. Nice. And, uh, you know, we have a pond, we have a lot of wildlife, and we, you know, it's, you can walk around. It's not, it's not horrible, but, uh, I, I feel bad. You know, who I feel bad for is the people in the big cities that are, are, uh, you know, not as free as they would like to be. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to people who live in New York City and they're in these little 600-square-foot apartments and there's not too much they can do. Yeah, I think people are starting to go out now more, a little more frequently, but still, they have to be very careful. And right. It's, it's not like the New York we used to know, you know. What have you guys been doing these past few months to stay busy? Are you doing any recording, or, or, or have you touched instruments? What are you doing? Uh, we, you know, I've barely touched my instruments in the past few months, uh, and neither has Tina. Um we, I've been, you know, working on, first you write the book, and then you have to work right. out, and the real work begins. <laughs> but I'm happy to say it's doing really well, and, and uh, I've, had, I've had some great reviews. A few detractors, but uh, we won't. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read quite a bit of it. I love it, and I've, to be honest with you, I'm surprised at what a great memory you have. You must be happy with that, oh, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I mean, let's knock on wood here because, you know, right. I, I'm getting to be of, of a certain age, and I, I, have to, uh, I have to enjoy every moment, you know? Did you come from a musical household? Or, because I know you went to the Rhode Island School of Design and you had uh, being an artist on yeah. your mind. Um, no, I did not come from a musical uh, family, but, but, but my family did love music. Like, my parents loved Calypso, uh, and uh, my, my grandparents uh, 
Well, on my on my uh, father's side, my 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 grandmother loved all the big band stuff and Frank Sinatra, and uh, you know what, there was always music in in the house. Da- down in Kentucky, my mother's parents were into uh, well, um, let, shall we say a, a less exciting type of music like Lawrence Welk. <laughs> right? But they they had a, right. they had a few good uh, jazz records, you know. But but most of their music was kind of it, but but you know my parents very encouraging uh when any when anyone in our family did anything in the arts they they thought that was great you know they had they had they always had a great love for you know things like the the symphony and um you know marching bands and and my mother even loved the Beatles when they came out. She didn't nice. like Elvis. She thought he was too common, but she liked the Beatles. That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, so did you and Tina meet in a class, or how did that happen yeah, we, for you? We met uh, at the Rhode Island School of Design. It was uh, this. Let's see. It was 1971, September of 71. I, I was I was sitting in the, a little park in the center of the. Uh, campus and uh that you know the students would sit there and hang out between classes and uh this girl came whizzing by on a on an old yellow three-speed bicycle and she had on like really short cut-off jeans and uh, uh a french striped sailor shirt and really nice blonde hair you know flying in the breeze as she went by and i, I looked at her and i thought Oh my God! The next day, uh, I went to my uh, first figure painting class that year, and I was setting up my easel and my, you know, my paint box and everything. And I, I looked across the room, and there she was. Yeah, oh, how and exciting. I, uh, I thought, how, how am I going to meet this girl? How, what am I going to do? And so, because I, I never thought of myself as particularly smooth with the ladies, you know. But, uh, but. But to my uh, amazement, uh, one of my friends, uh, who was also in the class, walked over to her afterwards. He looked at her, her painting, he looked at the canvas, and he said, obviously, you have no idea what you're doing. She looked kind of crestfallen, and I thought, oh, my God, how could he say that? But then I, I walked over, and I kind of pushed him out, gently pushed him out of the way, and I said, Obviously, my friend has no idea what he's doing, and we, oh, we yeah. uh, there developed you go. the friendship. <laughs> she already had a, a boyfriend, of course. Uh, I mean, yeah. how would a girl like that not have a boyfriend? Yeah, and I, I bided my time, and eventually, uh, we got together and made history. No, you sure did, and it's it's nice to hear you talking about her uh, so reverently after all these years. It's really great. Well, so David uh, David Byrne then enrolls there. My freshman year, he was part of my freshman class, although we didn't have any uh, uh, studio classes together, so I didn't didn't actually meet him. But he was around. He was a, a student, but then he dropped out after his first year. And kind of traveled the country. I believe he hitchhiked out to San Francisco, and um, that's a long hitchhike. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years later, he came back, uh, back to the RISD campus, and I think he tried to get readmitted to the school, but they uh, they said no. 
<laughs> he was hanging around the campus. Uh, a mutual friend of ours was making a student film about his girlfriend getting run over by a car. And, and uh, I knew I played drums, and he came up to me and he said, uh, "Would you would you play? Would you help me out with the soundtrack? I want in this scene where my girlfriend gets run over by a car. I want this loud, dissonant, cacophonous crescendo." And and I said, "Sure, I can help you with that." And he said, "I'd like to bring a, another guy along too who plays guitar." I said, "Great." And uh, at the time, I was keeping my drums at the carriage house where Tina lived uh, and um, my my na- the neighbors in my apartment building did, did not appreciate the drumming I was but but Tina Tina yeah, thought it was great sure. so I was keeping my drums there and on the appointed day um, my friend came with a Nagra tape recorder you know and uh, the guitarist, and he introduced me, and he said, this is David Byrne. We did the thing together, the, the rising, dissonant, cacophonous music, and, uh, you know, crescendoed and then faded out. And I think we probably got what he wanted on the first take or maybe second take. And uh, afterwards, I said to David, you know, Dave, I've been I've been thinking about starting a band, uh, you know, a rock and roll band here, just to, you know, for fun. Would you be interested in joining? And he said, "I think so." We started working together with this little <laughs> band called the Artistics. Eventually, after leaving school, we we moved to New York. Tina, David, and I, and well, you know, it's it's funny to me too because David, did he was he the front of the band? Was he the vocalist from the very beginning? Because he seems like the last guy. He was just so awkward and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. He was the vocalist with the Artistics. Yeah, we had a couple of vocalists, but he was he was the main one, and um, it everybody thought it, it was so weird and. Uh, it was kind of prototypical punk, you know. Yes. We, uh, but uh, when we got down to New York, it wasn't certain. I mean, it wasn't written in stone that David would be the lead singer. It, we were just starting this band together, and 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 Tina was in the band already at that point. She she had no, been done. no. Tina was still. Uh, Probably quite wisely say no, no. I was I'd been trying to talk her into joining the band for for a couple of years, and uh, she said no, no. That's like a rock and roll is a boys' club. I don't want to get involved in all that. Uh huh. But I'll be supportive of you, and uh, you know I'll drive your drum set around town and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And we were all living together, Tina, David, and I, all in the same loft. And so she she saw our struggles, you know, trying to find somebody that had a similar aesthetic to join our band. You know, David and I were not the most rock and roll looking people, and and so I think we were we just weren't fine. We were meeting musicians, but they weren't like interested in starting a band with us. Is it fair to say, kind of nerdy? Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think you could preppy. Yeah. 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 Okay. And uh, yeah, you know, we were. Uh, we let me put it this way: we did not look like a member of the New York Dolls. <laughs> well, who does? All right. So, uh, but but one day, I kept hoping Tina would come around, and one day she walked into our loft with a 
1963 Fender Precision bass guitar. Nice. And, um, and so what? She just taught herself how to play? She is self-taught. I mean, wow. some people think David taught her to play, but David doesn't play bass, and I certainly don't play bass. So we, I'm sure we made suggestions of, of different, you know, maybe parts or something, but... But really, she came up with her own parts, and she taught herself to play. And she's, uh, I mean, she was a fast learner. It's amazing. You know, I, Chris, I talked to Carol Kay ah, yeah. a, 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 a few months ago, and, and she told me that initially, I mean, it's it's a pretty muscular instrument to learn to play. So that's impressive. Yeah. And, and Carol Kay is one of Tina's idols. Never yeah. heard of Carol Kay until Tina told me about her. And I know that there was a point where you started kind of playing stuff, uh, cover material, and, and it's stuff that I know I would have like Lenny Kay's Nuggets and Paul Revere and the Raiders. That's that's some yeah. good stuff. And uh, but we also played um, things like uh, Love and Happiness by Al Green and right. Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. So we, we but yeah we we uh, we we had an eccentric uh, playlist. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a time I know that you started to put together the beginnings of the song Psycho Killer, which is, I know everybody yeah. loves that. Yeah, that was, um, we, well, with the, our band, The Artistics, we were doing all these cover songs, and we got to the point where we thought, well, maybe we could write an original song, you know, to, uh, to play for our friends. And uh, so one day David came knocking on, Tina and I shared a studio, a painting studio, he came knocking on the door and he said, I've got the beginnings of this song, but I wonder, could you help me finish it? And he said, this song is uh, inspired by Alice Cooper. <laughs> right. Wow. Alice Cooper was number, had the number one album at the time, I think, with Billion Dollar Babies or something right. like that. Uh, David played us the, the he had the, the first verse and the chorus, and he played it for us, and Tina and I liked it very much, and we thought, wow, it's cool. So, David said, I had this idea that uh, the middle section of the song, the bridge, should be in a foreign language to sort of like uh, uh, signify a, a, psycho, a psychological disconnect in the part of the narrator. Knowing that Tina's mother was from France and spoke fr French in the home, I, I said, well, T you know, Tina speaks fluent French. She could write it in French. And David said, great. He had already asked a Japanese woman to write write a middle eight in Japanese for him. And when she found out the song was called Psycho Killer, she she decided not to do it. <laughs> but Tina dropped what nice. she was doing, and she wrote it. And um, the words, let me see. What, it's, it's very interesting. It, it, what the French that Tina wrote was what has been described to me as very classical, um, like not the, the argo or the slang that, that kids in France speak today, or even back in the 70s. But what it means is... Um, what she said that night, what I did that night, realizing, meaning making real, my hopes, I launched myself towards glory. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's wow. very poetic and uh, 
it sort of hits the nail right on the head there. It does, and it sounds it sounds like a, a note that a serial yeah, killer exactly. probably would have written. <laughs> and so then I wrote a couple more verses, actually three, and one later got dropped. And uh, Tina and I were kind of brainstorming, and we came up with the uh, "We are vain and we are blind," and and I hate people when they're not polite. And within a few hours, we had this completed song, and it sounded so promising, even just David's playing it on an acoustic guitar, you know, with no other accompaniment, um, sounded so promising that I thought we should do more of this. And so we did. Yeah, and so did you always have, uh, at least in the prime period of the band, this chemistry in terms of writing material? Yeah, we had a even even up until the very end, the final album. We we had a, I would say, almost an alchemy. It's uh, it, what's so great is that when I hear these songs today, they still sound hip. They sure do. Well, did you, I mean, over the years, have you have you thought to yourself, boy, we were lucky the three of us got together and then later Jerry? Uh, yes, I, I think it all the time, which is one reason I wrote this book, because, um, you know, Talking Heads was was really like a team. Some, some people think uh, that it was, you know, they have sort of a single bullet theory, you might say. Yeah. But really, there there was there was a whole team working there. So in my book, I try to convey what what really went on. You moved to New York, as you say, and I believe you moved in the Bowery area where uh, CBGB was. Yes, we did. Who were your neighbors on that block or in that area? Well, uh, our closest neighbor in a building next door was a guy named Vito Acconci, a very famous conceptual artist. But uh, one block away was Debbie Harry and Chris Stein. Nice. And uh, in the loft directly below them, the the, uh, designer Stephen Sprouse. And uh, a couple blocks down from them was Ornette Coleman. Wow. And... uh, and his son, Denardo. A couple blocks up was uh, Dee Dee and Joey Ramone. Right. And their lighting designer and Mert guy um, who designed their logo and everything, Arturo Vega. And uh, Robert Rauschenberg was a few blocks away, Jasper Johns, um, uh, William Burroughs. You know, it, it was a heavy scene yeah. artistically, but, but um, everything went on behind closed doors if you were just walking down the street you would have no idea what was going on yeah and and i mean when you go to cbgb was there a period where you just wanted to observe what was happening i mean you were seeing people like blondie and television who i love and the ramones and and patty smith boy to watch all of them that must have just blown you away yeah it was um well, I was hoping when I moved to New York, I would be able to find a place that was kind of like the Cavern Club was to the Beatles or the, right. the Fillmore was to the Grateful Dead, you know? I was uh, a place where you could, where a band could play and, and grow. And, and so I was hoping to find a place like that for, for the band that I had imagined still an imaginary band. (laughs) (laughs) The first day I moved to New York, a friend of mine who lived on Bond Street, which is just catty corner across the Bowery from CBGB's, 
said, Chris, you know, there's something going on over there at CBGB's, and I think you should check it out. I know you're interested in starting a band. You should go check this place out. So I did, and, um, you know, I, the first band I saw was the Ramones, and then the second band I saw was uh, Patti Smith. At the Fantastic. time, she, it was just herself with Lenny Kay on guitar. And yeah. then uh, the next time I went, it was television, uh, a version of Blondie that was before Blondie, Debbie, Harry, and Chris Stein. I think it was called The Angel and the Snake. <laughs> you can guess who the angel was. <clears throat> so right. I, I could tell, oh boy, this is just the right place. So we started uh, rehearsing and rehearsing and writing songs and when we uh finally after we worked through the winter and uh spring and the following may i i uh approached hilly crystal the owner of cbgb's i went in and i said yeah we'd like to play and he said well i could put you on in front of the ramones on thursday night which was two nights away <laughs> so that's how we got our we did we accepted the offer and uh we ended up playing with the Ramones through the weekend. Didn't one of the Ramones say that you guys are going to suck, they'll yeah, make us look good? Yeah, that was Johnny. <laughs> yeah, that, that was Johnny. Nice. Johnny was yeah. a real sweet guy. <laughs> and I think it was David Johansson who said that you're just yes. too nice. Uh, David said... Chris, you're never going to make in this business. You're too nice. <laughs> so what, were you playing all original material by the time you took to the stage the first time? Except I think we did a song by the Trogs, I Can't Control Myself. Right. Uh, sometimes we also, we really love the Trogs, so we alternated. Yeah. One night we would do uh, I Can't Control Myself, and the next night we would do Love Is All Around. Nice. Which we also loved. Yeah, we 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 started doing Al Green. Uh, we started Love and Happiness, but then we switched over to Take Me to the River. Yes, which of course would become a classic by you guys. Yeah, but I don't think we did that in our first appearances at CBGBs. We did do the Trogs songs, though. How did it uh, come about that you would go on this European tour with the Ramones? Well, uh, that was the. Uh through the kindness of Seymour Stein at Sire Records and the tour support from his distributor in Europe, which was uh, the UK and Europe, which was uh, Phonogram Records. Uh, Phonogram was a big, you know, corporation. And they uh, they distributed Sire Records in England and Europe. And so they, they helped fly us over there and... Um, it, you know, pay for the hotels, which were low-budget hotels. But, but uh, you know, in those days, record companies gave you tour support. Yeah. And uh, the tickets were very cheap, like a few dollars. So, uh, oh, it was such a good tour. I mean, it was... It made history. I don't think that you guys had a hit record yet, so that's that's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, that this tour would be such a success. We had a seven-inch single of 45 called Love Goes to Building on Fire. Okay. And that was rush-released over there. And uh, the Ramones were touring on the strength of their first album. But what what was really selling tickets was um, they, the posters would say, Ramones, Talking Heads, New York Rock from CBGB's. 
And, and that's what really right. sold the tickets was the fact that we were New York rock from CBGB's. Mark. The reputation of CBGB's had really spread uh, amongst the kids, you know, just by word of mouth. The tickets were, I mean, every show was sold out. Did you get to spend some quality time with the Ramones? <laughs> <laughs> if there is such a thing? Oh, yes, we did. <laughs> yes, yeah. we did. When you signed your contract then with Sire Records, it, was it a, just a coincidence that that was the point where you got engaged to Tina? No, it was um, It was not a coincidence. We had, Tina and I had been thinking about getting married um, for, for quite some time already. Like like we both wanted to, and uh, we with by signing that contract, even though it was it was a, a small advance, you know, just enough to you know cover our um, our rent for a few months. You know, it was not a big advance or anything, but it, but it made us somehow feel sec- secure enough that we thought, okay, we we can do this now. We can support ourselves. We didn't want to be a burden to our parents. <laughs> So you went from three to four when Jerry Harrison came over from the Modern Lovers. What kind of impact did he have? It's quite a great player, yeah, isn't he? he's a wonderful musician and a really sweet guy, too. And uh, Jerry was uh, Im- immediately fit right in and really fleshed out and made our, made the, our existing repertoire all the more beautiful. You know, Jerry was was the most accomplished musician in in our band, and uh, he uh, well, at least in those days, maybe teenagers right. now. <laughs> no, that's nice of you to say. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, he he just uh, he knew exactly what to do uh, with without stepping on anybody else's parts and without uh, ever being corny, you know. And so it it uh, it just it, we all knew right away when we sat down to play with Jerry that he was the right guy. I have to ask you about the song "Once in a Lifetime" because I'm wondering about the writing and recording process with that song because that song just stood out on the radio. It was the, like nothing I had ever heard before. I'm assuming Brian Eno had a yeah. hand in that. Brian Brian was one of the writers and uh, and he was the producer. And uh, he, th- how, how, that's from the record Remain in Light. And all the songs on Remain in Light were composed by the band in the studio as we were recording them. Nothing was written ahead yeah. of time. There were no demos or, or uh, sheet music or anything like that. It was all, all, all composed in, in layers of improvisation. And, and we would improvise until we found something that that sounded good enough to play for eight minutes, <laughs> and then we would record uh-huh. a long piece of it. You know, uh, f- the the first the f- first people to go out in the studio would be uh, Tina and myself, and we would record bass and drums. And then Jerry and David would come out and record their parts, and then uh, eventually we got vocals on, but but. But they would record like the same part for eight minutes, and then they would do another track of a different part for eight minutes, and then you could punch in and out the uh, the various parts and experiment with them. And uh, it, it was very experimental. But the the final product sounds like it was all like 
conceived in in one one reason it it succeeds so well i think is it sounds like a band sat down and actually played it like that but in fact it was it was pieced yeah. together very carefully and very painstakingly uh, in the studio yeah i had no idea that it was that experimental the way that you uh put it together though uh in the pre- in the preface of your book you write you could say that tina and i were the team who made david byrne famous i'm assuming there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek well, um, there but maybe not you know i if i may say so uh D- david was not a person that a lot of people believed in he had faced a lot of rejection in his yeah. life and Tina and I believed in him, and and enough so that we formed a band and basically dedicated our lives to this band with David, you know, for many years. I don't think anybody else would have made that possible for David. And I don't think it was, would have been possible for him on his own, because he was just, I think he would be the first to admit that he was very socially awkward and not, not able to... Uh, talk business with someone, for example. So, so um, he certainly is now, <laughs> but these were different times. And so, so yeah, yeah, we shone the spotlight on David and, uh, and, and David, David was a magnificent performer. I mean, you can say what you will about his singing style or whatever, but as a performer, he was unstoppable. And so uh, I'm I'm very happy with the the way it turned out. Fantastic live, that's for sure. Now, when you and Tina spun off and created Tom Tom Club, it was a spectacular success. In fact, I believe Tom Tom Club had a gold record before Talking Heads did. That's yeah. true. That Tom Tom Club album was like magic. It was just it blasted off like a rocket ship and uh, uh, every band should be so fortunate as to have that kind of success because it it crossed over to uh, multiple you know uh, groups of people um, multiple segments of the population did david have uh, good things to say to you guys about that was that not his type of thing that was not really his type of thing he uh, he uh he once did ask me, uh, we were standing in Studio 54 of all places, and the DJ was playing Genius of Love, and he leaned over to me and he said, how did you get those hand claps? <laughs> <laughs> and how did you get that hand clap sound? And uh, that, that was uh, as deep as David <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, I think you wrote that he got into music so that he could get out of himself. I think that's just a great comment. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I think, it, I think that's true. It, it, it enabled him to uh, bust out of his, his uh, everyday life. Did David ever invite you guys to at, at least make a cameo appearance in his uh, recent Broadway show? No, no, uh, we we were not invited, and um, you know that's a, a little weird, isn't uh, yeah. it? But uh, I mean, we weren't even invited to see the show. But <laughs> but uh, whatever, I got to see a little little excerpt on Stephen Colbert. just like the rest of us right i thought it was great how you all got together all four of you for the rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony in 2003 was this the first time that your kids were kind of aware of what mom and dad had done well uh, you know they they knew what we had done they 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 uh 
they know the records they've seen the videos they they knew what we had done but 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 they had never seen us play yeah uh they just play as tom tom club and the, and they the, and we had played with jerry on the uh a tour we did called the escape from new york tour with debbie harry and the ramones and tom tom club and jerry harrison it was a lot of fun but they had never seen us play as talking heads and so I was happy. They it was a very short set, three songs, but they but they got the idea. I mean, they're aware how cool mom and dad are, which is more than most parents can say. <laughs> well, yeah, I have, I'm very fortunate. I have a I have a great relationship with our two boys. Chris France's book Remain in Love. It's on St. Martin's Press, and I can't tell you how much this meant to me. You guys, boy, you sure got me through my college years, and <laughs> uh, you're an amazing band still to this day. Both of your bands, and and of course, it's available on Amazon.com as well. I sure hope you guys uh, stay healthy and good luck with the book, Chris. It was so nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Yes, and. and Good, excellent questions. I can tell you read part of the book anyway. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. And uh, th- thanks for the interview. Wish Tina all the best and, and take care of yourself. Likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Talking Heads had artistic credibility and at the same time, a certain degree of commercial success. And that's not always the case in rock music. For instance, the Velvet Underground had tons of artistic credibility, but not much in the way of commercial success. Brian Eno's albums were great, but he didn't exactly ring up the cash register. But when Eno worked on the Remain in Light album with the heads, it was magic. That finishes off this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.